Welcome to Japan on Fire 6-2, the second part on our Mamoru Oshii coverage. We did the first part on Angel's Egg, and this one is mainly about two of his movies, a live-action one and a, an animated one, The Red Spectacles and Pet Labor. And uh, my name is Kenny B, as you can hear, and back with me again to make sure I don't mess up and uh, and uh, really tar, you know, ruin the, the, the reputation of uh, Japanese cinema and anime is, of course, uh, Coffin John. Hey, Ken. Uh, thanks for having me on the show again. Uh, I'm not too sure if I can help you with uh, ruining the reputation of anime because I, I think that I've done that enough myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, you know, if... if, uh, if... Those of you who listened to part one, uh, I don't know if you were surprised at all, but I think it was interesting that d- despite us having a you know, two-hour discussion on it, you, you reveal, which I don't think is a bad thing, that you're not necessarily the biggest fan of anime, not necessarily the biggest fan of Oshi, but you're, you're, you're interested in Japanese cinema enough to the extent that you want to be on a show that discusses context and perspective and discusses it at all, you know, it, it didn't seem like a strain for you to be on the show, despite being, you know, so so on the uh, players involved and the movies involved. Right, yeah. I, I think that if you have any interest in Japan, you really can't ignore uh, animation. I mean, at least modern, you know, Japan. Um, and, you know, even uh, old Japan, too, I, I can say, because, uh, you know, um, it's a big part of the uh, both current as well as uh, past uh, pop culture. And, you know, of mm-hmm. course, pop culture is an important part of, of any society. So I, I think it's something that, you know, one good thing about these podcasts, you know, I, I was talking to um, uh, the co-host on my podcast, uh, V-Cinema, and also your co-host on... Um, on uh, on uh, weekend sleeves, Josh. You know, one thing that we always talk about with uh, podcasts is that uh, it's kind of good that it forces you to look at a film or a TV show or whatever it is that you're covering, and it forces you to really get as much as you can out of it because you know naturally you have to come onto these shows and you have to perform. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to act like at least act like, and hopefully actually know what you're talking about so mm-hmm. you know it's, it's great to be able to look at anime and not just say like eh, whatever you know and to really look at it deeply and intensely for, mm-hmm. for once in my case anyway i mean you used to you use the word force but it's not akin to being forced on i mean uh you would have said no no otherwise to be on a coverage of any kind if you felt oh, sure. a huge strains i mean uh it, it it says something about uh, your interest in Japanese cinema, definitely, and and in, interests uh, elsewhere, obviously. Right, and you know, and if I were to choose an animator to examine, it ne- wouldn't necessarily be Oshi. Um, I think, uh, you know, as we mentioned last episode, since he's such a polarizing figure uh, in in several ways, and probably in ways we're going to talk about in this episode. Um, that, uh, you know, when you did bring it up that we would talk about uh, this uh, Oshi um, that, uh, you know, immediately sparked this interest. Like, yeah, you know, I don't think I've ever really considered him very much. So, mm-hmm. you know, why not? You know, like that kind of thing. You know, I would have chosen 
you know someone else who uh, who I think would be a little more worthy of looking into. But uh, you know, who knows? You know, this is one of those things where you know a lot of this stuff is new to me, maybe to a lot of the listeners as well. So you know, maybe this is this will be a brand new experience for me, and you know, maybe someone who I can have uh, some uh, new respect for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the yeah, end. It's- yeah, Angel Saga Gabba was not not necessarily a big surprise for you that you thought, that you liked what you liked in the movie, but uh, you certainly didn't mind uh, re-examining it as fully as you and I did. You know, going into subtext and themes and interpretation mm-hmm. as as well as we could. Right, right. I mean, yeah. I thought it was a pretty good discussion, uh, considering I I consider myself very bad at going in depth on. In de- you know, yeah, going in depth on movies, especially concerning religion. But for you know, I, I gave it my shot, and uh, as always, I call it call it as it is, uh, and hopefully, it's not too naive or ignorant. And uh, that's uh, that's what we're doing tonight, of course. And uh, some contact information before we uh, start the discussion on the first of the movies. So you're listening to Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. The website for all of the shows, including this one, is podcastonfire.com. Contact information, email podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Those of you who registered on the forum before still have access to it. We don't accept new registrations due to problems with uh, spam and also that the discussion has sort of migrated uh, to Facebook, which is not a bad thing, but... Uh, the forum is still at podcastonfire.com forward slash forum. You still have the members only archive from the, the past shows in the, during the last few years. So there's hours of stuff in there. But whenever we post exclusive content nowadays, you can find the, the, that content on the in the rather bonus episodes section of uh, the site. Uh, and uh, for the last Japan of Fire, we did a bonus episode on the. Uh, on the uh, Australian sci-fi movie in the aftermath that uh, cut together animated footage. Yeah, the animated footage from Angel's Egg and their own live-action footage. So I I thought that was a cool little sidebar to have, even though we are not likely to return to that movie uh, anytime soon or ever. I mean, you've probably erased that movie from memory by now, John. Or do you still have some painful (laughs) memories of that? No more dance numbers. (laughs) Don't know what you're talking about, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but but uh, I saw some different, well, a variation of the cool poster art from in the aftermath, which was you know really cool. That that stuff I would put on my wall if I had some poster-sized, you know, prints of uh, in the aftermath looking like that. You know, it looked cool. Uh, yeah. And, but uh, yeah, whatever. We we we've uh, we've done our work on that movie now. It's. Uh, buried again and it probably deserves it fully right and uh, we are as i said also on facebook uh, our uh, page main page is facebook.com forward slash pof network and we also have the discussion group that you can reach if you just type in podcast on fire network in the facebook search box also follow us on twitter twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire and uh, you can access uh, my filth and ninjas and Taiwanese examinations on sogoodreviews.com. All of that video reviewed on sleazykvideo.com. And I'm also on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. Rate and subscribe to us via iTunes. Uh, if you prefer downloading and subscribing to your podcasts via iTunes. 
And you can also stream us on the go via the application Stitcher, downloadable to your computer or to the very smartphones out there and tablets and what have you. Very much uh, free application. Dig it to death. I use it. I prefer it over iTunes. I, I don't like subscribing to podcasts on iTunes because my iPod or my iPhone is sort of immediately filled up and I'd rather have music on my uh, on my iTunes. So, so I go with Stitcher and uh, uh, if you just type in Podcast on Fire Network, when you reach uh, the Stitcher search box, you'll be able to add each individual shows, including at the time of recording probably some new shows. And uh, what don't you tell us about um, vCinema for those of you who don't know, John? Um, yeah, vCinema is a website uh, for those of uh, you who haven't checked it out. It's uh, We have reviews, features, commentary um, on that site. Um, proud to say that we just got, uh, I was just able to get a brand new uh, writer for the site. Uh, his name is uh, Adam Hartzell. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's worked with us before, but uh, he also writes for uh, places like KoreanFilm.org, Green Scene, SF360. So he's very much um, very much an enthusiast of both uh, Asian cinema and uh, as well as cinema in general, and really happy to have him on board, uh, uh, you know, along with uh, the writers that I already have on the site. Uh, we have a really good, uh, strong, professional crew of people who know their material very well. So uh, um, I think that if you're interested in reading about uh, Asian cinema in a manner that's uh, kind of beyond, you know, the... Um, beyond the usual uh, perspective of, you know, just Western people looking at uh, exploitation film, etc., then uh, I definitely recommend uh, checking out our site. Um, uh, we have a good wide range of uh, genres and uh, regions, too. Um, really happy that we're starting to do a lot more uh, films from what's called the Pacific Rim region. So, for example, places like New Zealand and Samoa and places like that you know these places that never get looked at you know mm-hmm. right on um we also have a podcast called the v cinema show uh which is also available on itunes and stitcher and um uh, other places uh definitely recommend checking that out i'm the host of that show um as, and we just mentioned that josh who is a co-host on uh, This Week in Sleaze is also a co-host on the V Cinema Show and we also have uh, Dr. Stan Glick uh, uh, from Asian Cinefest uh, his own blog and we all get together and basically talk about uh, a film and other stuff so um, you know check out our podcast as well and speaking actually of podcast apps uh, you are just talking about Stitcher uh, Ken there's another app out there that I wanted to um I, get, I don't know the people who do the app, so I don't know if I can say a plug, but at least recommend. Uh, it's an app. Um, it's on the iTunes store called Instacast. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it costs money. It's probably a couple bucks, but, you know, it's an in- independent, uh, it's an indie type of project, I assume, you know, so it, you can feel like you're supporting at least the guy who programmed it. But it, it's much like Stitcher. It's something that uh, you can add podcast to and they'll download them directly uh into your um into your ipod or your iphone or whatever you know so it's it's pretty convenient and everything um and it doesn't necessarily take up a lot of space on your uh, device uh it's something that i use and um, i use stitcher as well but i actually kind of prefer instacast because it's a little more streamlined and and um 
Stitcher is uh, Stitcher's kind of better for me for if I want to get a wide range of like you know music as well as you know podcasts and other mm-hmm. stuff. So, so I would check out Instacast as well if, uh, if you're inclined to uh, pay for apps. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing poor, nothing wrong with supporting uh, some uh, some independent uh, some independents if you will. Right. And, uh, so uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll probably check that out if it's available in my region it probably is but sometimes certain applications aren't uh, available in my region versus sure versus your region i I know i was really pissed off about that very fact uh, speaking of speaking of apps uh, uh, i'm a hockey fan so i i I have i have nhl game center on my computer and uh, they also have that application on uh, on the iphone because but this season because the swedish company that actually have had the rights last season messed that up this season uh, and and they uh, secured the rights late. The actual application never uh, was never available officially in Europe. So oh, uh, yeah, I I I, uh, I I got it eventually by mm. you know uh, by registering via a US account. Then I could get the free application. I still paid for my game center, obviously through the website and all of that. So it was not like I was stealing, but I, I wanted the application because it's pretty cool to have the. Um, to stream it on your phone if you're not not at home and all of that so yeah that's an important thing to mention uh and i, I know this is kind of going off track but uh, i think you know nowadays with technology how it is i think uh you know there's there's a big complaint among everyone who is a fan of media that you know why don't they release in my region why don't they release in my region how come they haven't put this out yet you can almost always point to licensing as the issue mm. You know, because licensing is such a big thing, you know, it's such a big deal with, you know, you have to get lawyers in, you have to get, there's all this racket that has to go through um, with licensing. And it's just, that's the reason why a lot of times we can't get things as quickly or in different regions as we'd like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember on that note, actually going even more sidetracked, I watched a a long ass video reviewing the old NES and Super NES RPG called well, it's called Mother in Japan. It's called Earthbound in in the US. Yeah, and uh, they 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 the fans are really requesting, you know, even on the virtual console that's available via the Wii. Now, like, come on, release Mother already! Come on, come on! And it turns right. out after some investigation that. It might come down to licensing issues because the games reference so much mm-hmm. uh, co- copyrighted trademarking, uh, trademark material, uh, n- right. not just in music but all, all across the game. So it seems like it was always kind of impossible to release it in the West without uh, going through a plethora of red tape right. and, and money su- subsequently. So that's possibly it. That's right, because it's not only your you have to license the title, but you have to license every single little piece of item that's in there that references yeah. a real life product let's say you know like so yeah. if you have like for example like a pepsi and yeah know, because that was a modern uh, era yeah. rpg it was not a fantasy it was exactly. actually set, set in the modern era so they they, they were bound to uh, encounter possibly pepsi or coke uh, along the way <laughs> who right. knows like uh, to get, to boost your health or shit like that you actually right. have to drink pepsi <laughs> you never know if that right. is the case but uh yeah uh, anyway, we are moving on to the uh, first of the two movies that we are covering this evening, and uh, we, we we're going sort of in in order in the timeline for for uh, for these two movies, and therefore we are starting with the Red Spectacles from 1987, which is live action. 
not anime. We're, we're covering anime, obviously, with Pat Labor, but uh, this time it's uh, Oshi's feature live-action ex- debut, and it's when the Kerberos series, later referred to as the Kerberos saga, took a step into the visual medium after having started as a radio play the same year, and that radio play was called appropriately enough because it's a prequel while waiting for the red spectacles and uh, this was uh, apparently written by the co-writer of this film uh, uh, Nori Ito and scored by the composer of this film uh, Kenji Kawai and going over a little bit of information that we went over in the first episode to describe a little about uh, what the Cadabaro series is about in a nutshell it has been described as a military science fiction franchise and uh, set in like an alternate universe with uh, devil alternate history compared to ours and it centers around the fictitious uh, Tokyo police special armed garrison uh, whose emblem and nickname is uh, Cadabaros which refers back to the Greek and Roman mythology, the, the, the watchdog of uh, Hades, the god of the underworld, was called uh, Se- uh, I forget what it was called in... Uh, in, in Cerebus. Yes, that's right. Not really referenced in this movie firmly, you know, it's not like we get super, you know, 200 shots of the emblem or anything like that, but uh, they, they do mention it in, in passing, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a saga or series that... Uh, is a tempting depth, anyway, and multiple layers. And uh, Oshi and the owner uh, of the franchise, they have not only worked the different media, such as, obviously, radio plays, movies, novels, uh, even, even mangas and animes. Or anime, I think it's only one anime. Uh, but licensed product, obviously, a huge part of the uh, Kerberos brand name as well. And uh, they are the likes of, obviously, the, the, the great the great iconic suit, the special armed garrison-powered suit. Uh, they have uh, action figures uh, depicting the suit. You have obviously the soundtrack, storyboard, guidebooks, which possibly is needed if you if you are attempting to follow this. You, you need a guidebook <laughs> if that what it if that is what it's actually referencing to, to like guide you in the story. I, I don't know, uh, but uh, there's also stuff like folding fans, mouse pads, statuette busts, and even bottles of wine with a dedicated online shop available on the official website. So, wow, that's, um, that's I don't know, milking or wisely, you know, uh, making your franchise uh, thrive and survive. Right. Have you encountered uh, like this uh, in, your, in your Japanese travels, you know, the, the different uh, merc out there? Oh yes, merchandising is a very big part of uh, of any kind of intellectual property in Japan. And really, when you think of it, I mean, uh, you made mention of a guidebook. I-, I think it wasn't like a guidebook, you know, like uh, like you might think of like like a travel guidebook or anything like that. It's probably more like a book that goes through all the different characters and yeah. all the backgrounds of the characters and that kind of thing. Kind of like a um, establish the world, you know. I, yeah. I guess you'd call it maybe a Bible or something like that. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, I think maybe... That would be know. suitable when it comes to Oshi to actually call it the Catamaro's Bible. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's good observation. But about merchandising, I, I think it's the case that... It, um, and I think mer- this sort of merchandising is becoming more common in at least the United States right now uh, with, you know, the popularity of animation as well as, you know, things like video games. It's just a case that, I mean, I guess if 
for those of the listeners or whomever are not really um, well-versed in this sort of merchandising, you think of it almost in, in terms of Apple. I mean, mm-hmm. we're both Apple product owners. I, you know, I own an iPod. And I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who own other Apple products or maybe all of the Apple products. You know, the the theory behind owning an Apple product is buying into an ecosystem. So everything, when when you buy an Apple product, everything is tied in with Apple. You know, it's like, I can't use my my apps on my PC, for example, you know, mm. because they are basically, there's this wall between them, right? When you think of merchandising in Japan, it's it's the same way. Now, there's no wall, of course. You know, they don't care what you buy. But what they want you to do is they want to immerse you into this environment. So it's not just, again, it's not just a movie, but there's also all this other stuff. And, you know, the mega fan is the person who would buy all this stuff. You know, again, the soundtracks, the the guidebooks, you know, the bottles of wine and things like that. So it's almost like this mega marketing sort of thing. I think the likes of like even places like the U.S., which is, you know, of course, known as you know the one of the ultimate uh, capitalist societies. You know, you know, we don't have that kind of of um, of that kind of like ultra power marketing here. We do, for, in, to some degrees. Again, so I, I think the Apple is one. Uh, you know, again, one company that can get away with this, but they do so by not like so much forcing it down your throat as sort of like presenting you with this sort of like, hey, you can be a part of our world, you know, mm-hmm. whereas in Japan, it's much more like, here's a bunch of products, you can buy them, you know, and <laughs> be a part of the Red Spectacles universe, you know, it's like, it's a lot more, I guess, what we call in the West crass, you know. Um, but again, it's something that a lot of people, you know, in this case, you know, uh, otaku would really get into, you know, which is, you know, which is a great thing for them. You know, you can not only have this movie to watch, but have all this other stuff that you can put in your room and to show that, hey, you are a super fan, right? So mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. It's all about fandom. Wonder if they ever made a like a limited edition full sized you know suit. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, this was back in the late '80s, which was probably I, I think if this had come out maybe in the um, you know around now, like in the 2000s or late '90s, I, that would definitely not surprise me. I mean, you know, the latest um, the latest in the Resident series uh, video game. Uh, that's coming out uh, out in Japan, there's a limited edition that's going to include a leather jacket (laughs) that the main character in the game wears. So that's how, you know, dedicated these, these like limited edition uh, sets can be, you know, it's like they'll they'll put in these, just these things like, like you're saying, like, like clothing and all this stuff. And they just want to make you part of that world. Night Vision goggles for one of these shooters a few years mm-hmm. ago on the Call of Duty's right. uh, Modern Warfare, which is kind of genius at, at the same time. They, they, they know what they're doing, and uh, hopefully those that buy into that actually are, are aware of it. This is kind of silly, but man, screw that. This is cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. There was even a... Uh, I remember for the, um, 
the game Dead Space, they included a replica of one of the weapons in the, right. the game. So you know, it, it's getting bigger. So it's not uh, it's not um, a kind of a distant dream that uh, they built at least one you know once uh, one limited edition uh, suit from the Red Spectacles that someone could buy for a ridiculous amount of uh, of uh, yens. So right, yeah, it's the power of fandom. You know? Absolutely, and uh, yeah, I mean, Oshi is certainly. I don't. I, I don't know if it's fair to say that he's creating something personal or not, but it's certainly extensive, and uh, he's earning money off the brand name at the same time. At least seemingly. I mean, that, that that's good business sense. I don't think it goes against necessarily the full ambition, because otherwise, I think Oshi would have a say in like, no, no, no. I don't want. I want. Don't want all the merchandise crap. You know. <laughs> Uh, but well, the... also, it, it might be a little hard to say it, whether he had a choice in that or not. I yeah. mean, depending on who the production company is that was behind this, you know, it might be the case that, you know, hey, you deliver the movie, we'll take care of everything else. Don't worry about it. You sure. Know? Yeah. And it might be the case that, you know, he got very little, if anything, for that merchandise uh, because, you know, a lot of times. You know, the contract deals in Japan can be a little bit favoring the companies more so than the individuals that produce the licenses and the intellectual property. So I, I could imagine that, um, that, you know, if anything, he got very little for uh, any kind of merchandise that did sell. But again, that's up in the air. I'm not too sure. It's something we might have to ask someone who'd know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, seeing as we're only covering one of the early episodes in, in the saga, it's it's difficult to give you listeners a sense of the timeline and connections through the various mangas and novels and movies. But uh, it's it seems though mangas have mainly been the way to follow the story arc during the last few years. And um, for for your information, though, we will at least at some point gather our views on the second uh, live-action movie as part of the saga called Stray Dog, Calibero's Panzer Cops, and the Oshii-scripted anime Gene Rowe, The Wolf Brigade, which I think uh, Stray Dog is a prequel. Gene Rowe possibly is even set before The Red Spectacles. I, I remember reading it today. I've already forgotten it, but it's, uh, no, it's, it's possible that The Red Spectacles is sort of the last in uh, the story story amongst these three uh, but um, it's uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that when we get to those <laughs> we're only focusing on what we have right now which is the red spectacles so uh, it was um, I don't know if it's available right now but it was released in, in Japan as a box set uh, containing Stray Dog and also Talking Head a live action movie which is not connected to the uh, to the uh, Kerberos uh, universe they just included uh, that uh, really weird uh, weird movie I, I think it's essentially Oshi Oshi's statement about filmmaking or just having lots of silly questionable fun about about filmmaking and animation uh, it was really weird, weird Talking Head I don't know if you've seen Talking Head or not no I have not actually right. and um, there, there was also also soundtrack in this box for um, the Kenji Kawai's uh, soundtrack to Stray Dog so that, that was also released in the US and that's uh, what I own. So the plot of this one, taken from the back of a US DVD. As the world decayed into chaos, the Metropolitan Police had no choice but to fight back and create 
an elite police unit known as Cadaberos, the watchdogs of hell. Over time, the zeal of the police force soon transformed into actions of cruelty and corruption. However, three of the elite rebelled against the system, but only Detective Kuichi Todome, played by actor Shigeru Chiba, escaped. Several years later, he has now returned home. But why? What is left for him in this city that continues to decay? Kuichi must now determine who's friend and who's foe as he attempts to unravel what happened after he left. Seems rather straightforward. Which is... Not seems really, that way, yes. It seems that <laughs> Which is not a feeling I got when I watched this movie. And uh, my, my first brief opinion of it, um, then you can pick your first uh, quick opinion of it is it's it's described as arty absurd and surreal and it's that's certainly very fair but not overall in a good way if if Oshi attempted to create characters and connections that that turned out to be valuable for those who wanted to follow after this point i mean it's all buried beneath admittedly admittedly some fun absurd stuff but also abstract art house that doesn't even resonate it doesn't resonate a lot with me to the point where I can try and interpret events. It was kind of long and odd, but mildly funny. So what did you think? Well, I, I thought, um, in essence, that the Red Spectacles was a, a big mess. Hmm. Um, I think at first glance, it's a it's an odd, offbeat, kind of fever dream of a film. It has its abstract moments, and I think it's kind of interesting that you interpreted um, uh, interpreted a lot of the film as being kind of art house. Um, I actually didn't. I, I think really what the Red Spectacles is is um, it's Oshi, of course, doing a live action film, but he's doing it doing it through the filter of anime. Every single frame in this film is basically, if you translated it to anime would make sense mm-hmm. i mean it would make sense in this anime kind of world you know while i was watching the film i just couldn't help but compare to uh in the aftermath you know which we covered last episode because this was also sort of an intent an attempt to mix this um live action with animation as as you remember ken and mm-hmm. um i really kind of felt the red spectacles was this is it interesting experiment in translating animation to um to live action but one that ultimately fails because mm-hmm. i think what it does is it really p- focuses on and points out these real differences in the approaches towards animation and live action in both not only um not only in uh, not only visually excuse me but also through narrative structure you know, because I mean, you know, you could arguably say, well, you know, a lot of the narrative is old she's. There's a lot of these kind of abstract moments that sort of do somewhat echo back to art film, as uh, we mentioned last episode. Um, Oshi was, you know, partially um, influenced by these U- European art film directors, mm-hmm. but I think his translation of these. Uh, of these scenes, um, you know, again, through the narrative come off as being kind of like, um, of translating what he's seeing in his head as through animation and trying to, to, uh, filter that into live action. And in that case, it really doesn't work. You know, if you consider films that, uh, go from animation or manga or cartoons to live action, 
you know, you have to essentialize what makes those those stories interesting to people. Mm-hmm. So uh, if we use an example, I mean, I guess, you know, a really bad example, I don't know if you've actually seen the uh, Dragon Ball live action film. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, I haven't seen it in, in total, but I've seen, you know, parts of it enough for me to say that I don't want to watch it in, uh, in total. You're going to live with that sin for a long, long time. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But, um, but, you can see that a lot of times that the director doesn't really understand what makes the animation appealing to people is, you know, it's the action, it's the excitement of it, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the characters are interesting, you know, that kind of thing, you know, I, I haven't watched Dragon Ball extensively, but, you know, I know enough, I've known enough people, you know, through time to understand what they like about it. Mm-hmm. And if you watch the live action, it's, it's very dull. You know, it's slow. It's it's dumb. You know, at least again the scenes I've seen of it. You know, and that basically undercuts everything, or at least most of what makes the animation good or appealing to people. You know, and I think that uh, Red Spectacles is, is very similar. It's he's trying to make this thing that connects to this world that is meant to be compelling but because of a lot of different reasons you know one of them being the production values the second being that his vision is not really translating well to live action mm-hmm. and the third one being that he's using voice actors animation voice actors as opposed to real live action actors yes like film actors or tv actors and all that does not really add up to being a very compelling product or work if you want to be artistic about it as a whole so you know that's why i think that um you know the film i think parts of it may be appealing to people to watch as sort of like surreal mumbo jumbo funny japanese weird stuff but if you watch it as a whole, I think it's just a it's a mess that's kind of dull at points and confusing, and there are a lot of strands that don't really match up together. And you know, I was watching this in Japanese too, so I'm basically following along. You know, I'm not just relying on a dub or something like that. I don't even know if there's a dub for this film. It seems like the least likely movie to just shoot out of. Uh shoot out of the western world you know dubbed right right and it makes some interesting references to past work but surprisingly uh and you know moving off of you know my overall um evaluation of the film surprisingly if we look at um you know last episode we were talking about uh, basically oshi's sort of uh motivations for making films and uh, animation um surprisingly there aren't any in the way of a uh, much in the way of uh, religious references, mm-hmm. um, which I, I was a little uh, shocked about, you know, because, <laughs> I mean, it's not like he has to do it, but, you know, we had sort of set him up as this filmmaker who has this interest in Christianity and the Bible and stuff. And, you know, that does appear in Pat Labor of all things. You know, Pat Labor is supposed to be this robot anime, but, uh, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't show up in Red Spectacles, which... I'm sure there would have been a lot of interesting opportunities to to add in something like that with some religious subtext. Um, but the fact that he didn't, uh, if anything, kind of stood out to me. Um, you know, not like he, sh- and again, not like he's 
it's mandatory or anything like that, but uh, but uh, it sort of uh, made me feel as if he didn't really know where he wanted to go with the story, and maybe. I don't. Was this, this was this film written with someone else? I don't think this was completely with she, right? Uh, it's probably um, yeah. It was co-written by um, Katsunori Ito as well. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know what their relationship is with each other, but you know, it could be in the process of writing the film. You know, neither of the writers. I mean, you know, when you're collaborating with someone, you always have to, to a degree, you have to agree with each other and work with each other you can't just say like i want to do it my way and that's the way we're going to do it so it kind of feels like as a whole the story is not as strong as it could have been if let's say you had a a writer with a singular vision working on it Mm -hmm. it just feels like there are some compromises and because of these compromises the film comes out as being kind of messier than it should yeah i I don't know if you you can call it the debut director syndrome um as such but uh you know i do agree that it's it, it's a mess and uh and largely more boring as it goes along but p- p- picking out the elements that actually work i mean what what certain viewers know that is that the movie has an opening that doesn't resemble most of the movie we have a we have a, we have a color opening and a uh sepia tone uh uh visual uh visual experience for the rest of the movie and and i think like uh in terms of an opening, I mean, it it really works. I mean, I think this is a cool way to. It, it looks like a live action anime, even in the opening. You know, big action, big suits, big guns, lots of squibs, doing violence, violence, violence. This is cool, and then it changes tack completely. At this time, I think he he was in, in the sort of starting uh, starting to create Pat Labor and all of that. So you, you sort of get another. An, another story about a, a unit created to maintain justice a, another special unit all only this time it's it's you know humans in you know intimidating human sized gear rather than big robots and all of that but yeah. uh, but I, ha- having said that out of all things i think that i latch on to so far anyway in the kerbero saga is is the design of the suit and obviously with the glowing red eyes sounds like easy design but i think they they designed a pretty intimidating, iconic uh, suit that has obviously survived. I think it, it surely must be a popular part of the m- merchandise section of uh, of this. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And I think that visually speaking, um, and the fact that they use um, German uh, World War II uh, weaponry um, yes. a lot of times it might kind of uh, bring to mind to some people, you know, the Nazis, the SS, you know, which is kind of like a, um, I guess you could say a very compelling image, but also one that's sort of in a way very menacing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not too sure what exactly uh, Oshi uh, is going for or was going for um, as far as the image and uh, the imagery of this, uh, of these, um, battle suits as well as the weaponry goes but i, I think that uh, that's gonna it's gonna definitely bring to mind a uh, sort of uh, world war ii nazism etc mm-hmm. um and the fact that they're supposed to be uh sort of police is kind of a little bit uh i don't know maybe it might be a little troubling for some people but um but what's kind of interesting i i want to put in a little side note here is that um this imagery is actually sort of referenced in uh in a video game um 
there's a PlayStation uh, 2 and a PlayStation 3 game called uh, Killzone, mm-hmm. in which uh, the uh, enemies in the uh, game called the Hellgast, if I remember correctly, have a very similar kind of image. It's got that uh, helmet as well as the red glowing eyes, and the the figures are meant to be very dark and disturbing looking. You know, mm-hmm. kind of again bringing up the sort of imagery of the of the SS or Nazis. You know, in the way that uh, the silhouette is displayed um, within the game itself. I think I remember that from. Uh, I haven't played it. I'm not really interested in it, but I do remember. I, mm-hmm. I must have graced some cover art to post rock because now that you say it, I, I in my head I. Uh, I can see that in front of me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if yeah, it I'm was not too sure. I'm not too sure if that was planned or not. You know, yeah. it's kind of hard to say. Maybe the uh, creators of the game were fans of uh, Red Spectacles, and... mm. or just so the image they... of that. I mean, uh, right? Maybe just they... the image, right? Yeah, because <laughs> I don't gather there's a bus going on about Red Spectacles out there. <laughs> yes. and, uh... Probably, probably not. Uh, yeah. Probably not. It's 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 quite an odd piece uh, so far in this. Uh, in the filmography of oh she's that we're going through kind of in real time too right? mm. so. but uh, w- w- one thing i mean I, m- maybe it's me uh, i'm not paying attention at all but uh, even during the opening i wasn't very sure and maybe that was the intent uh, about the fact that these three if they had broken loose because they felt they were being controlled by the higher-ups you know being being you know watchdogs and uh, and de- being dehumanized or if they were part of the problem of the these well-trained, intelligent uh, men and women actually going too far—that that was never clear to me. Obviously, the plot synopsis, synopsis suggests that they broke through, uh, broke away rather from from the system. Uh, but uh, that was one thing that I was confused about. Not necessarily, I, I wasn't criticizing the movie at that point because okay, here's the setup. Where are we going to go? Okay, are we going to go anywhere? And uh, you know, I, I've seen the movie once before, so I knew it was going to make that switch to. To a to a sepia tone, uh, surreal and kind of absurd film, which is a change that is noticeable, obviously, uh, and 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 I guess it's fun to to have that switch, um, but you know, I, I would rather have seen, I guess, uh, like to see if they could make a full live action movie, action movie only, just side, you know, ignoring all absurd stuff or potentially deep stuff and just make a full-on action movie concerning these you know uh, these uh, watchdogs from hell but uh, that that apparently wasn't really what anyone involved uh, wanted because it's it's still true for stray dog that opens up in a kind of similar hard way and then that switches to a taiwan setting out of all things i think it's mainly set in taiwan and it's also very slow and uh, isn't at all an action film as such so uh well, you could also argue that uh, Pat Labor, the movie, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, has a similar structure. Because, I mean, if you look at Pat Labor, or if you look at just, let's say, the DVD case, you're expecting this to be some kind of big robot war movie. Yeah. And in the end, it really turned out to be like uh, about two thirds of the film is actually more of a procedural, you know? Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that. I think in a way, I, I'd like to believe at least that she is kind of playing a little bit with convention, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting thought. I'm not, you know, again, in the case of Red Spectacles, I'm not too sure if that's a, entirely successful on uh, his part, a uh, successful gamble, that is, on his part. Um, you know, I, I certainly think that the, uh, as you're calling it, the sepia tone 
part of the film is interesting in that it establishes this sort of mood, mm-hmm. this sort of like a, almost like a dream state. Um, or you could argue it also establishes a mood of being like a, like a post-apocalyptic sort of mood, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of, um, you know, we sort of uh, understand that at this point that character is revisiting this, uh, this city and the fact that the, um, the authority has clamped down on these uh, things, you know, some things being, you know, very, very um, almost like ridiculous liberties, you know, like um, at one point, like one character, I don't, for some reason just wants to go to this uh, soba stand, you know, it's soba is this uh, kind of Japanese noodle. He wants to go to this stand where he can just, he can just, um, talk to someone while standing up, you know, yeah. while eating soba noodles. And they say like, oh, th- those have been outlawed now, you know, which is sort of like completely ridiculous on one <laughs> hand, you know, because it's like you're like, well, it's it's like it would be like outlawing, I don't know, like McDonald's in, in the United <laughs> States. You know, it's just it's just like a fast food sort of, uh, of, uh, of place, you know. But I guess, you know, the second thing is that, you know, the authority has become so overpowering that they are outlawing any kind of place where people can gather. I, I assume that's what, you know, the meaning of that was. Yeah. It's but, not uh, that there's even in the cinema that he goes to a few times in the movie is even empty. So it's not. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, I think if there's anything that you can, you can get from the film is that, you know, even even again, you know, the narrative is not all that great. Visually speaking, I think the film works. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I didn't necessarily want to sit through the whole two hours just to see, you know, what kind of visual tricks uh, that uh, she would come up with next. Um, you know, we talked about the visuals regarding, you know, their battle suits, and we talked about uh, these sort of. Um, sepia tone noir scenes and there's the the, uh, movie theater scene as you said and i think there's some really interesting visuals going on in here uh Mm -hmm. just there's no story real to really to go along with it um and uh actually i wanted to uh talk about uh, the movie theater scene because um it's it's probably one of the more uh striking scenes uh in terms of visuals but also um sort of surreal imagery because they're not really watching a film hmm. in this movie theater, right? They're actually watching what is watching them, which is kind of, I thought, really striking. It really reminded me of um, the film 1984, right? Mm-hmm. Or I should say the book as well. Because you have these eyes that are almost always watching what you're supposed to be watching on the film, uh, on the screen, excuse me. To me... Uh, you know, not only is that a reference to 1984, it's, I think he was also, maybe I'm getting a little bit off topic by saying this, but uh, I, I don't know if you've uh, seen this uh, manga. It's a, it's a, it's a manga from the late sixties called, um, uh, Japanese title is Nejishiki, but uh, the, the English title is a uh, screwed. Uh, no, um, I it's, seen okay. It's a really interesting, um, uh, surreal manga and it was actually made into a uh, live action film by uh, the great uh, exploitation director uh, Teru, uh, Teruo uh, Ishii I almost said Oshi but uh, and it's a really good film you should check it out it, mm-hmm. it's it's titled Screwed in, um, in English as well uh, 
But uh, anyway, so in one part of this manga, we have this character, um, I forget his name, but he gets stung by a uh, jellyfish while he's uh, swimming in the ocean. And so he has to find a doctor uh, to, um, to help him. And so um, he's walking in this town, and then while walking in this town, the only doctors that are in this town are opticians, <laughs> which is... <laughs> You know, and these opticians have these like signs with these, you know, with the eye on it, right? That that would be sort of like a universal sign that, you know, I guess of an optician or an optometrist. So it's this really bizarre, surreal image of him walking through this town, and you know, he's looking for someone who can help him uh, with this problem, but those people who the only people who could help him are not available to help the particular problem that he has so um i kind of think that well she was maybe trying to reference um this uh this manga from the 60s because it's a very famous manga as well in in japan anyway so so uh, i thought it was really striking really interesting imagery that he was using but again you know not much of a story to go with uh, along with it it's it, it... It's a movie when I start to, you know, watch this movie, uh, when I started to watch it once, uh, once upon a time, and even this time, I mean, I mean the, 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 as soon as I got the feeling that this is not conventional, you know, uh, and you're, you're starting to get a little bit confused, you know, I, I tried to tell myself, okay, there possibly will be a payoff, just stick with it, just uh, stay in the now and try and, you know, just go with it. And it's no... You know, during the first two reels or two or three reels of the switch to the sepia tone, it is kind of cool because what I mean, the design, the design choices might just be you know something that is that Oshi thought was cool to do. You know, there's kind of fifty sixty style, there's a this old style telephone in cars, and and I don't know if it's fair to say that the main character is uh, is essentially the you know challenge channeling the image of Alan Delon, or in fact it's uh, more of a Japanese uh, reference or not. But it's obviously the trench coat, uh, mm, you know, right. spark, spark, sparks, you know, image, uh, the image of Alan Delon. I don't know if this is just a, a kind of why not type of choice, because later you get, you know, really odd but admittedly funny scenes of, you know, the hit team, the henchman that uh, follows along, uh, you know, the main, the main government official, looking essentially like mimes or art even cats to some extent and you got that ridiculous character that is, is shot but then reappears uh, with that ridiculous smile and glasses you know that almost evil a kind of funny looking clown or mime mm. and I, I, I didn't mind it because it leads to very fun sequences that as you said uh, feels anime in style especially the killing montage with just uh, one punch in each edit as as Quichi takes out all of these henchmen, uh, which I thought was really fun and cool, and, and I think they have anime-style sound effects uh, within all that familiar sound effects uh, from, well, maybe not from anime, but you do as I think as an anime watcher, you kind of ah yeah, I, I think I've heard that before, and right. and that's a cool it, and and those are cool little sequences. I had fun with that, regardless of if I at the end would know what they were even about on their own, kind of cool. Well, again, Ken, I would say that, you know, if you are so inclined to rewatch the film, I kind of doubt it, but uh, if you put in mind, if you could somehow 
I don't know, in your mind or, you know, whatever, try to put a filter over it where every every single frame of this film could be seen as an anime. I think you could see that he, that's all that he was trying to do. And uh-huh. I think, you know, again, it's an interesting experiment, but I think one that ultimately you know, fails because it's it's a mess, you know. It's just, mm-hmm. it's not written well. I mean... I guess, you know, as example, let's say, um, you know, there's just one scene where the character, um, I've already forgotten his name, you know, that's how much, how dedicated I am to to actually, you know, caring about this film so much. Well, but, I, I, either Koichi or Todome, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, I was, I was just Koichi. He, he gets captured, right, in the film theater, yeah. and then his friend comes to sort of save him. And then when he escapes, he's yeah. got this really ridiculous running style. You know, he's just completely overdoing it. You know, but Run, running in place, uh, essentially. Right, looks running like in it. place. But again, think of it. If you think of just that, just cut out that one little scene, translate into that into an anime, animated image. It makes sense. Yeah. Because when you're watching an animated film, there's a suspension of disbelief. You know. Mm. Because you know that in an animated world, anything can happen, right? But in a live-action world, you're more inclined to base things on reality. It's like, okay, you know, a man running like that looks really ridiculously stupid or funny, right? Yeah. But in an anime, you don't think twice about it. You're just like, okay, he's running. He's running away. You know, yeah. it's kind of funny, you know, because it's... But in a way, because it's animated, it's meant to be kind of funny because our reference point for animation is comics and cartoons, which are kind of exaggerated and funny anyway, you know. So so I, I think that anyone who wants to watch this film should really kind of get that filter, that anime filter in their heads and think, mm. you know, this is – think of it in terms of what you're seeing on film is as if it was an animated film. And I think you could – it makes a lot more sense visually again. Not, and, and, again, and not those, narratively, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because those sections absolutely work for me. I mean, even though I did it at the t- uh, during the viewing, like firmly think that way. Just, just think of it as an anime. Uh, mm-hmm. I do love a lot of the humor. I mean, there's <laughs> in that killing montage that I talked about. There, there's a brief section where all of a sudden Quichi is having beer with uh, one of the henchmen, and then realizes that it's one of the henchmen, and then takes him out. Which is stuff that I found find funny, and there's a bowel movement uh, humor in this uh, as well. And one of the most funny scenes, one of the torture scenes, is when I think he's tortured with bad booze and he's, he's screaming out, "Give me the good stuff!" Right. And there's this great shot when he actually uh, spits out the booze and he shortens the, uh, the light bulb above him, which is a cool little shot. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but. It, it happened, uh, but but in terms of it being you know easily broken down in terms of a plot, I uh, for for a while it seems basic enough, but as the movie goes on, I I I was firmly um, lost and kind of frustrated because Oshi favors uh, these scenes at least on two or three occasions where you have one static shot and characters speaking very slowly for long periods of time, seemingly about random stuff. And right. that that doesn't play very well with me in 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 this movie anyway. Right. Yeah, I uh, agree with that. Especially that scene uh, in in the apartment where he's uh, reconnecting with one of his old uh, buddies, and it's it's just it goes on and on and on. Despite them doing stuff at the table, it's it's just uh, very 
very dull and there's also that scene with the the main uh, government official he's talking uh he's telling a story about the magnets and sand made of iron and it's, it's... right well he's he's trying to basically give um the character an allegory for his place in society you know? yeah but it's just so long. It's just such a long story. I mean, allegory is supposed to be an allegory by nature is an extended metaphor. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't literally mean you have to extend it for minutes and minutes. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just kind of like okay, I get it already. You know, it's like okay, I, I'm just nothing but a grain of sand, and and you're mm-hmm. a magnet. You know, okay, I get it. Right. That's not what I felt like saying to the screen. So. <laughs> Were, were you, I, I don't know, that far into the film when it's he's beginning to suggest that the movie is a dream and we even see that Koichi is amidst an actual set, not a movie set, but a set that he starts to destroy. Were you at all like thinking that this is this is logical within the movie or were you kind of, you know, not on board with the movie at that point when, when he really starts to break the, literally break the fourth wall, he breaks all of the walls? Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting as sort of like this meta narrative because obviously you know the sepia tone, uh, uh, in you know the sepia tone sort of sets the mood for um, it being sort of like a, a dream state possibly, yeah. and you know there is a sequence when within that section of the film that is an actual dream because yeah. he's actually being tortured but he has a dream like the the scene that you just referenced where he's talking with his friend and they're just sitting at a table eating noodles and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So it's sort of like, you know, if anything, I thought it was interesting. And then, you know, the scene you're talking about where he starts, you know, breaking that, uh, the, that fourth wall, you know, you start thinking, okay, well maybe this is all just a, just weird dream state. Yeah. But yeah, at that point I sort of like kind of had already given up on the film. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> and any, any kind of, even if, that particular moment of the film could be considered clever then you sort of think well why did i waste my time with a dream within a dream within a dream that <laughs> is boring you know so <laughs> what well, were you there for i mean did, did you did mention something that uh, about the the movie uh the scenes in the cinema and therefore that connects to the to, to the girl that appears every now and again in the movie. I mean, you, the, your interpretation, I, I, I had no idea that possibly meant that, that it was someone looking at him. But as we see the girl more frequently in the movie, uh, in the flesh more, the, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't even begin to think of what that possibly meant. Uh, yeah, if, if anything, I, I thought this might be the only part of the film that has a direct... Uh, Christian or religious reference to it, but even I was sort of like, you know, again, I'm at that point in the film where I'm like, eh, who cares, you know? Yeah. Uh, if anything, I thought, you know, maybe she could be an angelic figure, or you because know, because there like... was the same girl as in the movie screens and obviously all the posters all around town. It, it, right, it was the same right. girl, as far as I know. Right. So I, I thought it might be a religious reference, maybe a uh, reference to Angel or a reference to the Virgin Mary. You know, it could. But at that point, I'm just kind of <laughs> like, you know, I don't want to unravel this and yeah. find out. And I'll just accept it as being just like a another thing that failed about the film. Yeah. <laughs> that I couldn't get anything out of that. You know, this yeah. might have been key imagery, but 
Yeah, right. I, I mean, I, I, I had no idea. Might have been key imagery. Uh, the, the, the role of uh, referencing Shakespeare might have had something to do with something. I had no idea to right, which where, also where to is, start. Which also establishes everything being as possibly a dream, you yeah. know, because he's quoting directly from. Um, oh gosh, I forget the the play already, but uh, I think. But uh, anyway, two I, or three I don't want place. Was that? I think two or three plays. I think are referenced uh, in the right. movie, but but again, I didn't make any notes of what they were. But where they appear, uh, just for slight context, context is mainly via the phone conversations in the in the taxi, uh, the two or three phone conversations in the taxi. But again, I I I have I don't know. I literally don't know what it possibly was about. But 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 the randomness is kind of you know a rewatch might you know level level me out a little bit and. It, Especially after having this discussion, and kind of yeah, okay, yeah, because I can go with. Uh, I don't know if this is fair or not, but uh, for the sake of it, I can go with weirdness for the sake of for for the sake of weirdness because I, I think that that's a fascinating uh, exercise, especially if you can uh, if you can really you know push it. I mean, a movie like Eraserhead for me, I, I can interpret it a little, but I mostly go for it as an experience, and it, it goes it goes for it as well. So uh, I, I'm 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 not uh, I'm not against that, but uh, um, uh, that, if you will, artistic touch. If it means something, I don't know. But uh, man, that was messed up. <laughs> that immature, <laughs> that the immature was messed up. I remember that. I'll remember that forever. <laughs> if right. if I get that from a movie, then I'll, you know, I, I might return. On my end, it's more like uh, if it means something, I don't know. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I could skip this movie and not Yeah, it. yeah, you never know if I return to it or not. Uh, it's um, because it's a long movie; it's almost two hours. So, and it definitely, uh, it de- definitely could have at least ten, fifteen minutes out of it. Those long dialogue scenes, but uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's possibly done forever in uh, in my world here. But uh, I've given it a full shot and uh, attempt at uh, uh, at trying to uh, trying to interpret it. But and I don't mind. I, I mean. It, to be really simple about it, first half, probably okay. I mean, uh, I got more out of it, but uh, the rest was, uh, it petered out uh, rather quickly. Mm. And even with the uh, re-emergence of the, of the Cadaveros imagery within Sepia Tone, it was like, yeah, that's cool, he's in the rain. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and as you said, I, I don't care about that point, but uh, it made a cool poster. I found a cool poster of uh, of the movie with that the very image that I just described with uh, the Cadbear's uh, suit, uh, you know, in the rain. So right. I'd frame that as well. But uh, that's me pretty much done. If um, unless you have any more uh, notes about the film, nope, said everything I want to. Right, let's spare that one and uh, have a brief musical break and talk. about about the anime of the uh, of the podcast that is Pat Labor from 
Welcome back and this half of the show will be dedicated to the discussion and background of Pat Labor from 1989. Pat Labor the movie. And around 1987-89, rather 1987-1988, O'Shea was asked by a friend and screenwriter of The Red Spectacles and for 1995's Ghost in the Shell, uh, Katsunori Ito, to join Headgear, a group of writers and artists in the anime manga field. Apparently, Headgear was created so they, as creators, would be able to maintain copyright of their work for the publicity of their work to be more noticeable, elevated even. And, and you wonder really if it was due to several backlashes where in the past where they'd essentially been pushed over as creators. I don't know if you heard anything about, about this, John. Uh, no, I actually haven't. Uh, but <clears throat> my guess is that, I mean, it's not uncommon for uh, a group of of uh, producers to get together and uh, start an independent studio. I mean, that certainly happens in anime as well as, you know, video games, film, all kinds of media. Mm-hmm. And to give them all their uh, due and their credit, aside from Oshi and uh, Katsuniri Ito, the group consists of Masami Yuki, manga artist, uh, Yutaka Itsubuchi, Itsubuchi, mechanical designer, and Akemi Takada, character designer. And as for Pat Labor, they first created it and released it. It's also, by the way, known as Mobile Police Pat Labor. They first created it and released it as a six-part OVA, original video animation, and a manga written and drawn by uh, Masami Yuki. Uh, again, hinting on this hitting on this slight Oshi theme of working different mediums with his creations uh, already at the initial stage. Red Spectacles was a radio drama and shortly thereafter a movie, so uh, the, this was po- possibly a very conscious thought. Uh, this manga, by the way, was published in the weekly weekly Shonen Sunday, uh, a manga magazine, apparently, if this is right, uh, published on Wednesdays. But uh, regardless, uh, that was in 1988, and uh, a seventh episode of the OVA was a made available in 1989 to promote the 89 feature movie that we're looking at here. But Oshi and crew didn't stop there. A 47-episode TV series ran between 1989 and 1990. A 16-episode OVA was released between 1990 and 1992. Pat Labor 2, the movie, came out in 1993. But then there was a break. And the franchise was apparently just kept as it is until 2001 with a third feature coming out, Pat Labor the Movie 3 uh, also apparently known as Wasted 13 or an adi- it's a, an additional title to the movie and last to date appearance by the looks of it uh, uh, seems to be three short films done in 2002 carrying the name Mobile, Police, Pat Labor Minimum, Mini Pato that, funnily enough, experimented with different animation styles, uh, at least for the first short, uh, combining paper puppets and CGI and even a claymation sequence. <laughs> so, uh, who, who knows, that that uh, might be fun to look at. N- uh, note, though, that O'Shea's uh, last directing, credited directing within the franchise, took place on the second movie, back in the 90s. Uh, but he, he's certainly around. You showed me, John, a photograph of him, presumably, presumably at a press conference for some pet labor endeavor. Yeah, I would say most likely he stuck around as a consultant. And um, availability of these productions have been plenty in uh, all over the world and, and 
for instance, in the United States. Uh, uh, the manga it's, it's itself, though, was apparently never released in full, uh, f- fully translated into English, officially anyway. Uh, but the movies have appeared on DVD all over the world from both Manga Entertainment, Bandai Visual, and uh, Genon Entertainment. And the two OVAs have been released on US DVD by Central Park Media. Don't know if uh, they're in print uh, or not, but uh, scour eBay. And even the shorts that I talked about, the Mini Pato shorts, were part of limited edition, the limited edition extras for the third movie. So uh, it's all uh, sort of been available anyway. And the gaming industry got several tastes of the Pat Labor franchise because we are talking big robots. Uh, after all, is said and done that uh, it's a premium game fodder and. Uh, a lot of these games seeming, seemingly only, not only appeared in Japan, but certainly the market was Japan for these games. And uh, first, uh, first of the games that came out on the Famicom in 1989, and subsequently releases have been taking place on Game Boy and the Sega Mega Drive, the Super Famicom, the PlayStation One, and even uh, the PSP, which was a um, game that appeared in 2005. And we, we talked before that uh, you've actually seen a little bit, or played a little bit of the actual uh, PlayStation 1 game. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was back in, uh, I guess it was maybe the year 2000. Um, what it is is um, I used to uh, live near this area of uh, Tokyo called uh, Akihabara, which is very famous uh, among otaku uh you know, both Japanese as well as Western otaku, for being sort of like the mecca for anything that's otaku-related. So, you know, anime, manga, character goods, all this stuff. So um, anyway, back uh, back then in the 2000s, um, uh, Akihabara was... Uh, it was mainly game stores. Um, I wouldn't say mainly, but uh, there was probably more of a... a majority share of game stores now it's more anime manga stuff it's it's a mix of stuff but um you know back then at least i think there were more game stores than anything else and um i would just go there every once in a while just to check out all the new games that would come out every week and um you know of course all these stores would have these little demo kiosks in front of them and then um the only one that was open at that time because i think probably there was like a Dragon Quest game or a Final Fantasy game that had come out that same week, possibly, was this uh, game Pat Labor. And I'm thinking, what the hell is a Pat Labor? Because you know, <laughs> back then, I, even more so now, you know, I, I was even less interested in anime, so I, I didn't know what this what this uh, title was all about. But I saw, well, Big Robot, you know, might be kind of fun, you know. So I played the game for a little bit. And apparently the game is really rare now. Um, you know, I'm still a gamer, and I I keep tabs on all all kinds of games, especially import games. You know, I, I go to Japan every once in a while and just see what's on the market, see what's available, you know, what's common, what's rare, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, just as a hobby, you know. And then, uh, sure enough, I haven't seen this game uh, in years uh, probably since like the uh, 2002, 2003 or something like that. So it has some rarity of some sort, or or at least it's eluding me personally, so I, I'm not too sure what it is, but it's kind of a fun like action uh, robot sort of game. Um, I was looking at the other titles uh, in the other platforms uh, that you mentioned, you know, the Game Boy game as well as the Mega Drive or Genesis game, um, the okay. NES game, and they all look like they're a little bit 
different. Some are some look more action oriented. Some look more adventure oriented. So really? it looks like there's a wide range of genre being represented. You would think they would aim for uh, robot action only, side side scrolling action, possibly uh, possibly a POV style action. I don't know, but uh, good on them if they try to uh, be versatile about about the franchise. Well, you'd think that, but, you know, it's certainly the case that, you know, uh, otaku people who like video games, they have interest in very particular kinds of genres. So action is actually not necessarily one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say the most popular is probably the text adventure type of game, you know, like the famous um, genre that's associated with this uh, kind of game is the uh, dating sim genre, right? where it's just um, basically static, uh, stani- static screens with, you know, anime characters, and they're basically talking to you through text dialogue, and you make some choices in the game about, you know, how you're going to answer them or what you're going to do in the game, but it's basically kind of more of a static experience. Mm-hmm. Um, RPGs, of course, are more popular with otaku, I think, um, than uh, than other genres, um, and strategy games too. Um, mm. You know, there's a whole series dedicated to all of these uh, robot animation uh, titles, um, and the uh, the title of this game series is uh, Super Robot Wars, and yeah. they all kind of get together and battle each other, sort of. So. So action is not, I wouldn't necessarily say, is like the number one genre for otaku gamers. All right. Well, that's kind of interesting that, uh, yeah, that, uh, that uh, I approach it from a Western perspective, but um, uh, it's cool to actually, uh, you know, get that cultural uh, cultural perspective and difference that, uh, and, and yeah, not all gamers prefer everything, you know, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's cool that they can take a franchise like this and extract uh, extract different things from it. All right. And not be caught in sort of a in a corner. Oh shit, we we got a direction, but we don't want to. Well, we got big robots, so we're forced to. <laughs> so it's it's not the case of that. Well, that certainly happens too. But um, sure. I'm you know I'm sure it's the case that they want to appeal to a pretty wide variety of uh, gamers in this case. Yeah. Uh, on the OVA, by the way, I saw the. Uh, the first OVA that appeared, uh, the sixth part. I didn't see the seventh uh, episode leading up to the movie. I don't know if it has any benefits as such. Possibly they just released another episode to sort of say, hey, hey, Pat Labor's coming. You can see a little bit uh, a little bit more now while you wait for the movie. Although it deals in action plots involving terrorists and uh, even strands of um, evolution and there's also battles with sea monsters, it, it's largely a light-hearted series with very exaggerated comedic moments a la anime as you see as, as you've seen prior and uh, definitely seen this movie as well these uh, large kind of even pratfall moments I, I always love those uh, moments where characters react heavily and to something you know are stunned by something and literally fall over i was i was like that with anime <laughs> and uh, but it, it seemed it seemed like uh, headgear was having fun and they, they even have a that sea monster plot literally kind of parodies the original Godzilla at one point because they are going to take it out with an oxygen destroyer. So that, that's a pretty cool connection. And it's 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 all very breezy. You know, half hour episode is uh, entertaining stuff, uh, not biblical at all. They 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 keep it very very straightforward and uh, more uh, you know general audiences. Uh, 
would have an easy time with this than the movie i i gather but but it's nothing bad actually it's a it's a fun little series uh, to call it classic i i think that's a stretch but uh, it's good fun and uh, sometimes that's all i need uh, but moving on to the actual plot of the movie and um from uh, wikipedia in this case might have been taken from somewhere else itself but a series of random labor Incidents across the Greater Tokyo area puts the Tokyo MPD's 2nd Special Vehicles section on the case. The incidents turn out to be part of a dead programmer's diabolical plot to create a much bigger rampage. So that's the plot. I'll uh, hand it over to you for now, John, to sort of share with us your your first uh, brief opinion of the film. Sure. Well, um... You know, as we've already established and mentioned uh, several times uh, throughout these first two episodes, you know, it, certainly in the case, I haven't seen all of Oshii's films. In fact, you know, as as we mentioned, we're sort of going through these in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say uh, so far, I can imagine Pat Labor being sort of a logical starting point in his uh, filmography. I mm-hmm. think there's there's enough concession given to more um, enjoyable entertainment you know, commercial aspects to the storyline, but without sacrificing some of the more um, interesting, abstract, possibly compelling uh, aspects that we've talked about as uh, with um, Oshi concerning his work. So, for example, uh, the references, the biblical references that we've uh, talked about uh, before, you know, ones that, you know, sometimes work well, sometimes don't. Um, and I would say, actually, in the case of Pat Labor, um, the references actually work pretty well. And, yeah, pretty decent, yeah. Yeah, and I think that uh, they mix fairly well with references to, for example, technology. You know, there are indirect references, for example, to uh, singularity, um, as well as references to more modern, uh, uh, I would say modern day as in, um, you know, what's happening now in terms of, like, things like uh, computer viruses. Yes. Um, so I think it has a good mixture of these elements, you know, um, and because of that, you know, even, you know, even more so than, of course, we were talking about the Red Spectacles earlier, uh, and, you know, even if we talk about Angel's Egg, uh, I think this is, again, probably a logical starting point for someone uh, who has not really experienced Oshi before. Mm, oh, definitely. I wouldn't lead people di- directly to Ghost in the Shell, by the way, because that is a lot to take in. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, even Much like Angel's Egg, probably. Oh, right? yeah, definitely. Yeah. Dense, right, yeah. Yeah, I should mention that. I, I have seen Ghost in the Shell, so... <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, it's certainly probably... Uh, Ghost in the Shell is certainly a movie that uh, pe- people would, uh, you know, encounter... Uh, Faster and uh, definitely, uh, you know, um, it's more available. Uh, Pat Labor is available, as we said, but uh, Ghost in the Shell was such a big release and, uh, you know, uh, a movie that connects to Oshi's name. But uh, but, but I agree, I, I would steer people towards uh, Pat Labor. I, I, I've I not seen Pat Labor before, I only know it was a mo- movie. <laughs> I know a friend of mine, uh, not the guy who steered me towards uh, Hentai. But uh, another friend of mine uh, liked uh, Pat Labor. That other friend never ever mentioned Pat Labor, so it's he 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 was more into the violence and porn. 
than the uh, big robot action movies. <laughs> Having said that, he did buy Ghost in the Shell at the time, so you never know. But uh, I, I do, I, I do really like Pat Labor. Actually, it's it's a, it's a nice little step up from the OVA, who, which di- didn't look bad by any stretch of the imagination. But it's a nice c- cinematic step up. Uh, the the budget is, pre- is presumably a bit higher, and it looks uh, pretty compelling. And uh, and uh, e- even though I don't, you know, take with me all of the uh, deeper elements and connect all, to all the deeper elements, especially towards the latter stages of the film, you know, the biblical references. Some of them I I, I kind of thought they don't really matter to me i did i can sort of this sounds weird i know i've said this a bunch of times i can sort of extract certain elements that i don't think work and still overall feel that a movie is uh, very enjoyable and very effective i am not uh, i'm the the, the sequences the, the stuff that don't uh, I, I don't feel resonate in pet labor they're not necessarily sequences that i feel are destroying the movie it's like ah, I, that didn't work but i've it still it still drives forward the movie, yeah. so uh, I, maybe that will make more sense uh, once we reach kind of a, uh, a non-spoiler discussion of, um, uh, or maybe a spoiler discussion of uh, some of the stuff towards the end. But uh, it, it's it, it it's good. I, I would return to this. <laughs> uh, it, it's funny though. Uh, it, it almost opens with imagery with. Uh, you know, yellow sky, red sky, and uh, and ravens, and you know, it seems very angels eggy, <laughs> and the percussion score, very um, very 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 um, effective per- percussion score, drives this slowly. So oh, here we go, here we go, <laughs> more angels egg. Right. Is this a good thing right. or not? But that, that that's not indicative of how the movie will play out overall, because it it, it is so it is of course very much connected to the OVA. OVA, it's 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 more ambitious. Uh, it definitely, but it doesn't forget its characters and its established moods, including the lighthearted moods. I would say though that uh, one of the weaknesses of the film, um, and luckily it only really appears in I think the first third of it, is uh, there's an over reliance on um, the script to uh, give these long monologues of exposition, mm-hmm. uh, which I mean I guess it's sort of important for uh you had mentioned that there was um you know an ova before the film as well as a tv series and i think it, it's important to of course establish establish uh context in the film that viewers uh who hadn't seen the ova or tv show would not know mm-hmm. you know for example um you know, for one thing, where they are, you know, where they're located, like what the setting of the film, you know, and what's happening, you know. But I think that a lot of this exposition is not set up very properly, you know, like, for example, and this is something that I'm sure that, again, a lot of video game players can uh, sort of understand is that, you know, when when ex- exposition is set up improperly is is when it's basically a situation like this. One character will say, like, oh, just like let's say let's say for example um uh in the in the uh, movie there's this thing called the project babylon yes. right which is this big construction project right so one character might say something 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 project babylon and then the next character will just go on for like two or three minutes talking yeah. about it <laughs> and you know that character is not talking to the other one he's talking to the audience yeah. you know once you know that you're being talked to as an audience it really kind of breaks that illusion that you know this is a 
you know, continuous, contiguous world, you know, it's just, it, the scene is just mainly set up for your purpose and that's it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that there, uh, you know, the first third of the film kind of relies too much on that. And I kind of wish that uh, Ushi had taken the stance of, I, I don't want to say it's Ushi's fault, but I wish the filmmakers had taken the stance of, um, of showing, but not telling or incorporating exposition within natural dialogue so it doesn't stand out so much mm-hmm. of being just like this big information dump yeah i i did there, there was some similar stretches in the ova uh as well on, on in, in that way where characters uh, speak for a little while not at, for as long though because yeah they only have 30 minutes per episode so they can stop for five six seven minutes to have exposition right. but i do remember it uh, that uh, one of the female characters uh one of the key female characters not noah uh, though uh, had that every now and again, and they had they, they had class settings though, uh, you know, um, uh, where it sort of made sense that you have a teacher speaking, <laughs> and you right. get away with it that way. But it, it, that, that that stuff that normally doesn't drive me up the wall as such though, uh, I was fine with it personally. But I do I, I do get what you're saying that exposition is such a, I don't know, it's, it's such a bitch to get through. You sometimes you just have to do it. I guess some do it better than others, obviously. Right. And and the funny thing is that, you know, we I've already mentioned that the film has some biblical references and you would expect that these references would come up in um, in exposition because, you know, these are references that the average Japanese person might not get off the bat. So, you know, I I would think that there might be this tendency with the filmmakers or the um, I should say the screenwriters to sort of have an explanation of what some of the connections are between the biblical references in the story and the actual Bible. You know, like, for example, we already mentioned there's Project Babylon. There's a character named Noah. Yeah. There's um, this place called the Ark. Mm-hmm. There is, uh, there's the, the name of the virus is Babel. Um, you know, there's all these things that point to, um, point to references in the Bible, but they don't come up in exposition at all which i thought you know on one hand i'm you know sort of criticizing the filmmakers or the screenwriters for too much exposition as far as the setting and the situation of the um story goes but on the other hand i'm sort of commending them for not going the route of saying like hey you know what you know this this is like a story i read in the bible exactly. you know this is babylon and we're in the things called babel oh my god i know the answer to this you know well, you, well, you're called Noah. yeah you're right, right exactly <laughs> yeah so uh, you know i'm glad that they they weren't tempted to try to to speak down to their audience in that aspect mm-hmm. uh, of of the story but um you know overall though i i really can't fault the script too much i mean it's it's not like it's a no it's not like completely annoying it doesn't ruin the film i should say that that there's exposition it just it just sort of bothers you uh, every once in a while and you know the fact that you know some of the exposition is sort of dense that makes it a little more difficult especially if you're a person who is not uh, familiar with uh Tokyo or technology, which are the two things that get the most uh, amount of exposition towards. Yeah. Uh, talking a little bit about uh, uh, sort of the style of the movie, I mean, the, my minor notes on that is that you compare, compared to the OVA, and I know comparing a cinema feature and OVA is not necessarily wise, but I, I, I do like that, yeah, that, that 
the Pat Labor story get, get sort of a cinematic upgrade because the, the movie does look good. The, the animation and design. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've always I, I do like the sci-fi robot the sci-fi nature to it and robot the design and metal nature to it all. You know, big robots are kind of cool. I, I know the OVA opening sequence, by the way, is uh, really cool because they, they, they animate some cool uh, fight stuff there with uh, with the background moving akin to you know that that fast moving background that you see in anime they do that in the opening sequence of the OVA uh, which is really cool and uh, I, I like this um, th- th- this frame depth here that that appealed to me uh, different elements um, th- different elements in foreground background which doesn't sound revolutionary but I think that th- there's some subtle usage of uh, the you know the ability of probably the the budget allows for this frame to be really you know spiced up without it doesn't go into a huge old style of substance look at the cool shots we can do i think it just looks really cool in in now in cinema format now in widescreen and all of that so, so uh, um i don't know if, if you had any notes about the style as such no i really didn't um i i can't it's hard again it's hard to say because you know again i'm not like a major major anime fan so it's it's hard for me to like put it up against anything else i mean i certainly enjoyed the style i think that this the setting and this is this occurs to me on a lot of uh of uh, anime is that the setting is kind of odd because i always kind of feel that Oh, I, I felt that um, in uh, Pat Labor that, you know, you have this sort of setup, this sort of sci-fi, you know, you get these robots and these computers and, you know, you set up, okay, the setup is basically, you know, okay, this is going to be definitely sometime in the future. But then you have references to a lot of 1989, 1990 stuff visually. Yeah. Um, you know, in modern day at that time, Tokyo, you know, so you kind of think, are they, is this like a supposed to be an alternate world? I, I mean, I know this is an anime, so it's not necessarily supposed to be anything except for an anime, but yeah. it's just sort of like an odd mishmash of the present and the future that it, it, it doesn't really mix well with me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, that was one thing that sort of stood out that I just had to tell myself to just ignore. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Even the uh, the operating system that plays a huge part of the plot is uh, is programmed in 1999. So it's uh, they, they, <laughs> right. you know, so yeah. It's and the OVA never really made any statements about that. It was just this is the setting, you know. Right. right, uh, right. So um, they they had they always had before every episode a little little prologue about in the future they need we needed to we needed to do this and this and therefore the pet labor force was created and that was pretty much it Uh, you know i should i should mention that i just mentioned that you know there's a lot of real world world setting and stuff and actually all of that uh except for the robot stuff but all all the uh all the different locations and stuff that i mentioned in the film are real life locations Mm -hmm. i mean there's a real artificial island in tokyo that's it's basically like a giant you probably call it a truck stop actually mm-hmm. it basically links to areas of uh of that area um up that uh, across the bay right that's mm-hmm. all it is basically so it's kind of like a um this what do you call it like a gigantic like freeway intersection in a way and there was a artificial island you know built to be able to accommodate that so mm-hmm. you know that's and all the locations they mentioned within the film are real life as well you know 
know, so they mentioned some areas of Tokyo, you know. So I didn't want anyone to think that this is supposed to be some kind of completely, you know, uh, fictional uh, imagining of Tokyo that's, you know, completely different from the real-life place. It's very much uh, an animated version of the modern-day Tokyo at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and on that note, I mean, I, I what, one of the sort of key story points set up early in, early in the film is that there's land shortage uh, mm-hmm. in Tokyo and they, they and uh, they, they're, they're expanding via these uh, these landfills I think they're called uh, but you know it, it has the you know the, the question obviously posed here and uh, is there uh, you know at what price are you like, sort of expanding Tokyo because you're also sort of burying old Tokyo with it and that, that that's kind of a key key plot point uh, of the movie so I, I don't know if you know anything about how how connected to reality that is that they, 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 there's that issue of land shortage in Tokyo. right oh that's yeah that's very much a part of reality you know even now probably dating back to certainly dating back to the war and even before that because you know as many people know from anecdote mm-hmm. there's a, a great uh, percentage of the population of Japan resides in Tokyo, you know, which is a pretty small area to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. But it's around, I think it's around like 20 something percent of the Japanese population lives there. So you think a quarter of a population lives in an area that is just a small, small part of the country. You know, everyone wants to grab up land. You know, property is, you know, insanely expensive. You know, and especially in very um, cosmopol- cos- excuse me, especially in very cosmopolitan parts of town, like for example the Ginza area, which is you know, people who don't know Japan know very well. It's a sort of it's a sort of posh shopping area, and I was told that just like a, let's say a two or three meter square area of that land is more expensive than the average house <laughs> wow. in the United States. So you're talking about a small little dot of land compared to, you know, a full residency, you know. It's it's quite ridiculous how uh land, you know land prices are there and uh yeah, the shortage of land is definitely a, a very uh big part of um of how things are considered in Tokyo, like, you know, zoning and things like that, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, not only is that artificial Island that they mention in, um, in the, uh, in Pat labor, a real thing, there are other artificial islands, you know, one, uh, that is a little more new is, uh, called Odaiba, which is, has turned into basically a big area where there's a lot of shopping and condominiums now. Um, you know, before that was ocean, you know, now it's this, you know, it's part of Tokyo, you know, and I'm sure that uh, if they could, they would stretch that out even more. But, you know, there's considerations to be made towards, you know, the environment as well as, um, as uh, uh, you know, as well as uh, cost and expense, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very much a big part of, uh, of, uh, of how, of the real life modern Tokyo, yes. On the connection to uh, to the OVA and its characters, I mean, I mean, you you do recognize them, you do recognize the redhead girl, and uh, but but I really, I I really only saw them as part of a group in the OVA. You never really extracted characters. You you never really, I don't think they even named the redhead girl Noah in the OVA. 
could be wrong, but I never noticed it until until this movie when they connected it to Noah and the Ark, which is very unsubtle. But it 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 is kind of fun to see them back again, uh, being being comedic, being lighthearted. Uh, but 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 they don't dwell on, on on that in the movie and reserve half an hour for them to be all wacky uh, amidst each other. So, I mean they're, they're there and c- certain characters are more prominent than others. I, I'm not particularly sure I I ex- I extracted more than one character in terms of um, remembering the character from this movie. And it was Noah and uh, all the other maybe one or two leads male not leads but um, lead male characters from the movie they, they they are there you sort of recognize them but I, I, it's not a huge character piece as such which is fine uh, actually it's fine it doesn't really matter yeah they're they're pretty generic as far as uh, anime characters go i mean you know even someone who doesn't watch it anime actively can kind of you know suss out who is who you know as mm-hmm. far as um as uh, character types go, yeah, and uh, the what one thing that is actually in the tradition of the OVA is that is that the action scenes uh, when they're dispatched uh, to to take care of this uh, these uh, labor labors running uh, running wild, uh, they they always had a nice drive to them. The, the action scenes in the OVA and well animated, and I think that tradition continues here in the movie. Thankfully, uh, they, I, I was definitely never bored when when the movie. Uh, when the movie intensified uh, the action scenes and uh, you know you know big robots are kind of cool they appeal to me on that kind of primal level as well <laughs> but i think to reiterate uh what we said during the uh, red spectacles review you know this is not a full-on one and a half hour robot war no or anything, no no, no. You know? this is very much half of the film at least half of the film is dedicated toward figuring out the mystery behind uh, the the robots yeah. so in in essence it's a procedural not not necessarily a police procedural but it's a procedural yeah i actually appreciated that structure uh they it, it's more of the first half that is what i just described but i actually appreciated the structure i mean i i was on board with the movie i was following it with interest and uh and and as you said i mean when when these uh, detectives uncover they they go from the various apartments that the uh, that the hacker has lived at who's jumped from the ark and they uncover quotes from again genesis uh, behind uh, behind this uh, calendar behind paintings and stuff like that it's kind of uh, i like actually the these these scenes with the detectives kind of going around these these uh, apartments uh, by the water and uh, these rundown apartments, they were kind of atmospheric. I actually did really like the mystery. At one point, I didn't even know there were... I, I didn't know there were detectives at one point. I thought they were possibly bad guys, but uh, because there were no dialogue scenes between them, they were just going around these uh, various houses. But but then it's revealed that they are actually investigating uh, and following the s- traces of, of the hacker, which is I think was called uh, Hoba, E-Hoba. Uh, which almost sounds like uh, Jehovah or Jehovah, as they uncover right. later in the film. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, and speaking speaking of the biblical references, uh, we might as well just go ahead and talk about them. Yeah. Um, I, I think last episode I talked about how uh, Japanese, not only Japanese filmmakers, I think, but just the Japanese in general are not so, as a whole, I would say, um, are not so familiar with the bible and religion and characters within as well as 
I could say maybe even to a degree religion in general. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that much like Angel's Egg, the use of uh, biblical iconography as well as just reference to passages, as he mentioned, as well as story, as I mentioned earlier with you know Noah, the Ark, Babylon, Babel, all these uh, various uh, story references um, to the Bible, that there's a sort of mix of them – these references and iconography, uh, there's this mix of them being kind of clever, clever, uh, how should I say, not clever, but well incorporated mm-hmm. in the narrative, and then sometimes being very clumsy. Like you said, Noah and the Ark, you know, it's like, oh, gee, that's really subtle, you know, that kind <laughs> of thing. So it's kind of this interesting mix. And, you know, earlier I said that, you know, it, it was a good mix overall between that and the more action-oriented as well as procedurally-oriented aspects of the narrative. But I think if you isolate just these religious um, uh, undertones within the story, I I think you can see that, again, there's this really mix of them being kind of clumsily stated as well as cleverly incorporated into Mm -hmm. the story. Um, So I think that... um, this is probably a much less uh, demanding film than, let's say, Angel's Egg as far as those aspects of the storyline goes. Oh, yeah. But um, all the same, I think that some people might find them a little off-putting because in some ways they are they are used in a very literal sense, you know? Um, uh, one example being, for example, you know, we've already established there's this character Noah and there's this setting within the film called the ark and then you know they go to this place and to discover to try to figure out what's happening you know why is this what where's this virus coming from who created it etc that's the mystery and when they figure out that there might be someone else in the ark they go up into this area and they figure and they and they go up there and there's what's there well it's a raven it's mm-hmm. like, gosh, how literal can you be? You know, the raven <laughs> is seen as this sort of betrayer of the, of the people. You know, the raven was to Noah um, a, uh, an animal that he released when uh, the ark first uh, landed on top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, that raven, instead of going to find out, uh, you know, where they were and to possibly get help, he basically got sidetracked um, and ended up, you know, finding some dead animal and eating its carcass or something so it's kind of the raven has always been sort of this uh this symbol of you know sort of betrayal um uh, to the people to Mm -hmm. people in general you know i mean we sort of have that image of ravens being sort of like these sort of like i don't know how can you say it um imposing figures kind of negative we we Mm. associate them with death that kind of thing you know kind of like same thing with snakes you know with the guard uh the garden of eden adam and eve and all that stuff right so in a way i kind of feel that there's this kind of mix again this mix of clumsiness and cleverness going on and Mm -hmm. i I don't know the the watcher or the audience themselves will have to decide which they feel it is yeah it's uh it's these parts of the movie that really mix mixes you know the the action and the mystery and the sort of drive of of the plot i mean we we, we kind of are looking we are 
looking at kind of a doomsday scenario uh, possibly here and those points uh, this is what i was talking about at the beginning of the review i can extract kind of these on the nose biblical references that i don't think are affecting to me as a viewer and and take the movie for not all of them i think some of them are really good but i can't take the movie for you know uh, only look at the movie as via those elements uh, that, that the sort of you know the, the spectacle on 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 display and the action on display and the fact that they have to you know save tokyo ultimately that that really works and i don't and and, and i don't think the elements that oshi really wants to be there to for us to see and absorb i i don't have a problem sort of setting them aside and and, and still liking the movie I mean, for instance, that discovery of the ravens, the red-eyed ravens to boot, you know, talk about intimidating. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't really work, but it, I, I, I find that they, they are staging some good stuff here and exciting stuff. And there's even some kind of, ga- you know, gasp-type moments, especially that sequence kind of is because they are, they are, they are deceived. Uh, without, without spoiling the movie, they, they, are, they are walking into a trap, essentially. Uh, and, and I, I thought, the, you know, I, I was kind of on the edge of my seat, despite some of the mo- uh, some of the moments are kind of not working, uh, we, which I don't know makes sense for any other viewer but but me. But uh, I, I did, I, I was on board with the movie. I didn't tune out. I guess that's the easiest way to sum it sum it up. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think as a whole, if I think about that scene, then it, it is effective. I I just thought that when. The reveal happens of you know well, I've already kind of spoiled it of it being the Raven. I was just kind of like, oh yeah, I kind of expected that. <laughs> <laughs> we are on the arc after all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, it it really depends on the viewer, you are, I guess, in terms of how much you are out of the movie when you encounter an element an element you don't like i was sure yeah I, I was kept on board i mean i i, I and i appreciated the the this the 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 build-up to uh the, the mystery build-up I, I thought that yeah why not go you know you know go for depth go for intelligence and i, and I don't think oh she and and uh, and the writer necessarily shot themselves in the foot i mean it, it kind of worked and kind of didn't work as as we as we've discussed i mean there, there's some brave I don't know if you should should say brave choices, but you you weren't necessarily expecting these choices via Pat Labor, and especially viewers at that time who saw the OVA and kind of ex- experienced this during ninety minutes. Uh, it would have been right. interesting to kind of know if they were totally like this was too much. What happened? I need to go and rewatch. Or if it went the other way, you know, this was this wasn't the Pat Labor I loved. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. And who knows if they? I mean, I think I'm gonna watch uh, watch the TV series, uh, considering they uh, did quite a lot of episodes of the TV series. Who knows if they if they uh, tried to incorporate this a lot or only mildly, or went back to the original format, if you will. But they did have quite a lot of episodes in the TV series to to work with. Right. So, and and Oshi was still around at that time and did direct the second movie, which I'm obviously going to watch at some point as well to see. Mm-hmm. Where was Oshi at that point? You know, um, closer to Ghost in the Shell and still in those kind of philosophical deep thoughts, seemingly. Yeah, so. and who knows? Maybe he moved out of Genesis and went into <laughs> uh, 
don't know, Ecclesiastes or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I, I I do sense that you. Um, I don't know if you you were kind of pleasantly surprised by Pat Labor, but definitely you you tolerated it for you know quite a bit or a fair bit, considering you're not a huge fan of this uh, this stuff of anime. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, again, you know, I, I keep on kind of uh, hedging and saying, like, I'm not a big fan of anime, or I'm not the <laughs> biggest fan of, you know, I keep saying that over and over again, but I kind of feel like it, it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like self-defeating to keep saying that. Um, I would say that I'm a fan of anything that's good and not a fan of anything that's bad. So, yeah, of course. So if it's animated or if it's live action, I mean, I'd much rather watch a good anime than a bad live action film yeah. any day. Of right? course. Um, but with that said, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I thought Pat was very enjoyable. It was the, I think, the proper mix of of more anime tropes and more ambitious um, film-related ones as well as ambitious, you know, abstract you know, again, referring, referring to the Bible and future technology, um, you know, singularity, things like that, you know, without being too heavy handed, mm-hmm. although, you know, there are maybe one or two points arguably that are that way, but, uh, but, you know, overall, I think a good balance of, uh, fun and, you know, with a little headiness to it, mm-hmm. I would say. And after all, it was released dubbed all over the world, so it wasn't too heavy for for exports. Uh, yeah, definitely not. Apparently not. Yeah, yeah. And, and and seemingly they did keep. Obviously, they they had to keep. If they cut it, I haven't seen the English dub to know if it's actually uncut or not. But uh, uh, I would think they kept quite a bit of it because it's a key key plot elements. <laughs> right. I mean, if they had if they objected to this in terms of it's not commercial, then they'd only have half a movie if they cut out <laughs> the biblical yeah. stuff so so it wouldn't really work and uh, yeah. I, I would think so too yeah and uh yeah so that's uh, that's pretty much us on pat labor and uh, i haven't decided yet uh, exactly what to cover on episode three if we deem that we've reached ghost in the shell or not i'm, I'm gonna have I'm gonna think about that when we do reach ghost in the shell i think i've said this before i didn't want to actually uh see the 2.0 version but I, I like the notion of actually posting bonus episodes on the website so I, i'm gonna go go ahead and suffer through the 2.0 version i'm judge <laughs> i'm judging it beforehand and i think it's still deserved because it's man oh man what were you thinking i might I, I might as well get pissed and watch that movie you know get drunk and watch it and really get angry <laughs> uh, get it out of your system yeah man. i mean it's uh, there's some you know just fascination with just what what are you thinking are you getting old and senile oshi or is this uh were you even involved actually and you know were you just i don't i don't know but but i still love ghost of the shell the original as it is and and i still have it so it's not like oshi burnt every 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 element of the, the 1995 movie and made us deal with the 2.0 version only, but uh, yeah, it's a mystery. It's a mystery sometimes with these filmmakers going back to to their old movies, and uh, yeah, it's a whole no- a whole other debate, I guess. Right. Yeah, definitely. I managed to end there without naming the most famous person in terms of going back and changing 
changing stuff, you know. I managed to not say that person's name. You know. Oh, who's that? Who are you talking about? Yeah. What's the anagram for? <laughs> Is there a good anagram for that name? <laughs> I have no time to look that up. Anyway, we'll <laughs> we'll uh, we'll certainly announce uh, along the way uh, what uh, movie or movies we're going to cover in episode three. So we we're not done. We we we're going to keep looking at this. I think we're we we we. It is a good subject uh, when all is said and done, and and uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm getting to see new movies as you are as well. And uh, the the further we get into Oshie's filmography, the, uh, the the more new stuff uh, I get to watch because I haven't followed his uh, output for the last uh, for the last few years. I think the most recent movie of his I've seen, and that's now about ten or eleven years old, uh, is Avalon, the live action. Mm. Live action right. Polish language movie, which I liked, so I'm looking forward to rewatching that. Uh, is, but, it, is that the film he did with Krzysztof Kieślowski? The uh, I mean, it's art director. I mean, it's in Polish, so possibly uh, he employed Polish crew, but uh, that, uh, I haven't looked in, into it uh, okay. that much actually. But uh, you know, it would make sense, and it's uh, you know that that movie is kind of uh, in design in terms of when they're in the matrix of that movie. That's it's kind of poop brown and works. Ghost in a Shell 2.0 is made poop brown and it doesn't work. <laughs> if you've seen screenshots, I mean, huh? <laughs> anyway, off that and into the brief contact information again, and uh, we'll sign off. So you've been listening to Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network website, podcastonfire.com with all the shows. Contact information on email, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Check out the forum. If you register there, you can still access it. And members only, podcastonfire.com forward slash forum. Facebook, we have two ways to, for you to interact with us there on our page, facebook.com forward slash POF network. And we also have a good old discussion going on in the discussion group. Just search Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search search box and you'll find us. And add us on Twitter. Check us out on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. And follow my reviews and my exploits, reviewing Taiwan cinema, Category 3 movies, and uh, ninja movies on sogoodreviews.com and video reviewing that stuff on sleazykvideo.com and talking about all that stuff and other nonsense on twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. Check us out on iTunes. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Leave us a rating and a comment if you like. We would very much appreciate that. And stream us via Stitcher. Stitcher.com. Available free. Download to your desktop or download to your uh, your your phone via the respective app stores. And add us by typing in Podcast on Fire Network and you can add each individual show. And uh, again, these cinema details, John. Uh, yeah, we are once again located at vcinemashow.com. Our podcast is on iTunes as well as uh, Slapdash Radio and Stitcher. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention, uh, I, I was we were talking about the uh, Pat Labor video game, and it just kind of occurred to me that uh, actually I'm going to be going uh, back to Japan in probably another few months, and uh, what I'll do is I'll try to hunt down the game, <laughs> and, if, and if I can find it, I'll take a picture of it for your listeners that right you can on. post on your blog, uh, Ken. So that that's our challenge, to find the so-called rare Pat Labor PlayStation 1 game, okay? Do you think there still are like bargain bins uh, in, in in stores over there that actually has PlayStation One games still? Oh, pff, there are tons. Really? <laughs> Believe okay. me, yeah, yeah. They, they haven't forgotten about it. No. There, there are 
video games are such a part of the culture over there that there are stores dedicated to just retro games. Right. So, yes. so there's Famicom stores and uh, Mega Drive stores and whatever. So. Right. Yes. <laughs> right. On. Well, that's cool. Keep keeping it alive because it's not a it's not a format in game system that uh, you know ha- has no meaning or value. Absolutely not. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That that warms my heart. So. <laughs> Uh, I hope it's as easy as going to the PlayStation 1 Rare store. I hope it's called that. <laughs> <laughs> Found it! <laughs> no, but as as you know, since you're also a collector, Ken, as you know, the hunt is more fun than the actual find, you know? Yeah, some of the times, maybe most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Sometimes it's nice just to click a button. And yeah. Say, hey, it's coming it. to me. I did it. <laughs> yeah. Now, move on to the next click. Obtainable yeah. click. Oh. <laughs> right. Well, good luck on that, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully see you for the next episode, John. And uh, thank you very much hey. for, uh, for, uh, for being on this one again. Very valuable uh, to have you on here to, to, to balance my naive, naive views uh, versus your educated views. Uh, also naive, naively educated. How about that? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. We'll yeah well, thanks. For, thanks for having me on once again, Kent, and I look forward to the next episode. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye, bye.